let's open our Bibles. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Over the Thanksgiving, uh, the day of Thanksgiving, my, my family decided to go for a walk. It's a common tradition, right? You gorge yourself and then you walk off some of the calories. So on our walk, we made it to a cemetery in Centerville, and we just began to look around the cemetery. I don't know if you've noticed, but cemeteries are full of stories, quiet stories. The stories emerge in different ways, whether it's the value of the stones or the epitaphs, or as you look at family units who have decided that they wanted to lay in rest together, or just simply the date ranges. Now, as I go through a cemetery, I have to admit, I don't get the value of an expensive tombstone or a luxurious mausoleum. I mean, there's a message there. The message is like I was, you know, a person of means while I was alive. And I just think, yeah, but you couldn't take a dollar of it with you. What was the point? The epitaphs, however, I get that. that. That's a message to the living. You know, some of them are meant to provide comfort, like this one I saw, do not mourn my death, celebrate my hope. Some of them are meant to tell of the love story that two people shared. Our love is eternal. Or, or others tell of the impact that a person had on others, respected, loved, adored, and missed. And some of them are meant to just be funny. Alan Dale Wilcox left this message. He said, if you're reading this, you desperately need a hobby. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I get it. Some of the stories that you read are a little more painful. You look at a husband and a wife that are buried together and you see the separation of the two on the dates of decades. That must have been hard. Must have been some grief there. Or sometimes you read of a third set of dates on the tombstone, a date that was just too short, like seven years or three years, a child. Painful. You know, as you walk into the cemetery, there's another message that I think should just be screaming at us. And the message is, I am alive. You know, I'm not just another quiet, somber story right now. No, no matter what I'm dealing with right now, no matter what the circumstances are in my life, I still have a story that's being written. There's opportunity for movement and change if that's necessary. You know, as we go into the text this morning, Paul takes us through a walk in the spiritual cemetery. And why does he do this? Well, he does it because he wants us to see that there's still life, there's still opportunity. He wants to create a contrast. Life without God is no real life at all. Life with God, of course, is vitality. It's everything. 
So we're going to start by looking at the cemetery, and that's the first three verses. Let me read these to you. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here we are, we, we begin this passage with a, a rather shocking, jarring message. I mean, no one wants to be told, you are spiritually dead. But I assure you, Paul doesn't take any kind of pleasure out of conveying this message. He's being a truth teller this morning. Can you say truth teller with me? Truth teller. That's what he's doing. And sometimes someone bears the the unpleasurable responsibility of telling the truth. I think of a doctor entering into a patient's room and conveying the hard news, you're terminal. Or a police officer who must show up at the home of a family and say there was a, a fatal accident that involved your loved one. No, one. no one wants to convey that kind of information, but it's a responsibility. It's necessary. So as we look at Paul's message this morning, he walks us into the cemetery, tells the truth, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this is a universal kind of message. It's not a message that is geared only towards the people that we believe are deserving, you know, the the really, really, really bad types. No, this is a biblical diagnosis for every human being. And the diagnosis is spiritual death. Now what is spiritual death? Well, according to the Bible, it means that a person is cut off from God's life-giving, life-sustaining power. It's separation from God. I know it might be hard to hear, but God will not, cannot associate with the spiritually dead. It's not because God is some kind of harsh judgmental, condemning God, as some of us have been told about God, that's not the nature of the case at all. It's simply the fact that God cannot, will not, openly associate with evil. I mean, think about our own present situation right now that's taking place in the world. If you associate with evil, you endorse the evil, and that's why the United States and all kinds of other countries around the world are saying we are not going to associate with the Russian government right now. We don't want to send that kind of message. And of course, God takes a very similar stance with evil. You see, the hard truth that we must accept from the cemetery is that I can go nowhere until I'm willing to accept this reality. There is real evil inside of me. Real evil. Now, the terms that Paul uses to describe this evil are trespasses and sins. The word trespass means a false step or crossing a boundary that you know you shouldn't cross, deviating from the right path. Sin means that you miss the mark or you fall short of God's standard. So here you have 
both the active and the passive nature of evil. Now, passive means that sometimes I don't do the right thing that I know I should do. Active means sometimes I do the wrong thing that I know I shouldn't do. Now, Paul says that this problem of evil is compounded because there are three powerful influences that are colluding together that keep us separated from God. The first is the world, the second is the devil, and the third is the flesh. He begins in verse 2 by saying, we are following the course of this world, which essentially means that you're going with the flow. When you look at a culture, and many of us say, there's something broken (laughs) with culture right now. We sense it. We were just talking about it in our Thrive group recently, and we asked the question, I asked the question to the group, what is broken about our culture right now? And we spent like 30 minutes. It was like a laundry list of issues. We're like, this isn't right. And that... And someone actually came out and they said, you know, it's almost like you need to ask the question, what isn't broken right now? And I don't think that was a pessimistic outlook or a cynical outlook. I think it was just honest. Another example of that is you look at the political class right now, right? Most of our politicians have a 20 to 30% approval rating. Now, We might say, that's really bad. We need to get these people out of office. But how did they get into office? Politics is always downstream of culture. Politics is a mirror to culture. Now look at the next part in verse 2. He says that you are the prince of the power of the air is controlling or influencing us. Now, this is a reference to the devil. He has many names in the scriptures. The the gospels call him the ruler of demons, the prince of this world. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. Now, whether or not you believe in Satan, it doesn't matter because he believes in you. He does. And he has a powerful influence in your life. Now, Here's the thing, the word influence is important because Satan doesn't control you. He can't make you do anything. He can only tempt you. But as you look at the scriptures, his job is really, really easy. Because verse 4 or 3, Paul says, We all once lived by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So Satan doesn't have to work that hard to entice us. He comes along and he says, You know, that person said something to mean to you. You need to hold on to that. You need to be bitter about it, even hate them for that. And your flesh says, You don't need to tell me twice, Satan. He's not the one who starts the fire. The fire's already lit. He just pours more gasoline on the fire. Paul says that this all results in our spiritual death. We were by nature children of wrath. The expression is a Hebrew expression. It means that we all are worthy of divine judgment. Now, Paul is telling us something about the cemetery. He doesn't want you to stay in the cemetery. 
You know, when you walk into a cemetery, you don't walk into the cemetery and start speculating land and say, you know, it would be really nice to put a house down here. I could really see a beautiful garden. Let's just linger here. In fact, morbidly, I hope one day that I just stay here in one of the graves. No. The whole point of going into the cemetery is to gain some perspective about life. I, I love how, as Paul's taking us through the cemetery, he, he uses all past tense verbs. Notice, you were dead. You once walked. We all once lived. You were, by nature, children of wrath. Here's the thing. There is real power in the past tense. You see, the past tense suggests that I could move forward. The past tense says that these things could be things that were once true of me, but they're no longer true of me. He doesn't write this in the present tense. He doesn't say you are dead. He doesn't write it in the perfect tense, which means you are dead and you will always be dead. He writes it in the past, suggesting that the cemetery doesn't need to be your experience or your fate, that there's a way forward. Now look at verses 4 through 7, and we'll learn about the way forward. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That powerful adversative right there in verse 4. But God. You see, with these two words... Paul begins to preach the good news. And the good news is that the Christian message is a message about life, a message about resurrection, a message about transformation. With two words, we learn something about God, that he's not a God that just simply judges sin, but he is also a God who is in the business of dramatically reversing our cemetery status. And our cemetery habits. I mean, look at the, the reversal side by side. He says, you were objects of divine wrath, but God had mercy. You were dead, but God made us alive with Christ. You were in bondage, but God has seated you. Now that word seated, that's special. Think about it. Satan, the world, the flesh, they were all working together to estrange you from God, but God wasn't content with that. So what did he do? He removed you from the sphere of control of these co-conspirators, and he seated you in a different realm, a heavenly realm, a realm where you can now experience right relationship with God. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God reach from his perfect dwelling place down into the place of despair, the cemetery, and pull spiritually dead people from it? 
right here we see it's in his nature. Listen to what we learn about God. God is rich in mercy, verse 4. Great in love, verse 4. God is kind, verse 7. God is gracious beyond measure. And because God is like this, God has extended an olive branch to an estranged, alienated people. He is essentially saying, there is a way back to me. Well, how do I find my way back to him? Well, you look at, you get the answer to that by looking at the key verb in verse 5. You see, in verse 5, Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So to be made alive means to be saved from spiritual death. To be saved means that this is an eternal kind of salvation because spiritual death was an eternal kind of thing. So God has forever changed our status to where we enter into right relationship with him. He's now your God. You are now his adopted child. That is the overwhelming nature of what salvation is. In fact, as you look at these verses, everything you need to know about salvation is contained in these verses. Let's unpack it a little bit. First, we see that salvation is found only in Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't talk about, you know, many roads leading to the top of the mountain. He says that you were made alive with who? Christ. Now, why is that the case? Well, if you look at the gospel, we learn that Jesus came into the world to die in your place, to die in my place for our sins. He died a criminal's death on the cross. And on that cross, that crucifixion was not just an act of injustice in history, though that was a very unjust thing that happened to Jesus. It was also a place where God put on his judge robes. And there in that place, he condemned humanity's sins. Only I didn't have to stand in the place of my own sins. Jesus, the Son of God, chose to stand in my place and bear my penalty on my behalf. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why in Acts 4.12, the apostle says, There is no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why I keep saying, guys, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's only by Jesus that you can enter into a right relationship with God. Which leads to the next point. Salvation is a gift from God to be received by faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved by faith. This is a gift from God. It's not of your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Have you memorized those two verses? You should. <laughs> They're like, Super important verses in the Bible. This tells you everything you need to know about salvation. And if God ever gives you the opportunity to tell someone about salvation, 
It's in these verses. Listen, salvation is by grace through faith. By grace means that you did nothing to contribute to your salvation. In fact, if you were to put a bar graph together and you were to put each person's contributions, God's contribution, your contribution, God's contribution is 100% of the bar graph, yours is zero. We did nothing to contribute to our salvation. That's why we say salvation is of the Lord. And we didn't even contribute faith. I know sometimes believers will think that it's some kind of transaction where God contributes his grace and then I come alongside and I contribute my faith and then I'm saved. That's not how it works. When someone gives you a free gift, like a hundred bucks, you're not like contributing to the hundred dollars by taking the hundred dollars from them. No. No. The only thing that faith means is I'm embracing the gift because some people could be presented with a gift and say, I choose not to accept. And people do that. So when I come to God through faith, I say, thank you for that generous, priceless gift you gave me in your son. One more thing we learn about salvation And here we start delving into the incredible, complex mysteries of God. You see, salvation only works because we are spiritually united with Christ. Now, Paul, in the New Testament, often speaks of the believer being in Christ or in Him. He says this all over the place. He also says that you're with Christ or with Him. He also talks about the experiences of Christ being parallel with the experiences of the believer. We see this in Ephesians. If you go back to Ephesians 1 verse 20, He raised Him, Christ, from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now place that side by side with verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. He made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, what does it mean really to be a Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian? It's inherent in the name Christian. Christian means Christ one. So it's not primarily just the fact that we worship Jesus and we glorify him as the Christ. It's not just the fact that we obey his teaching, though we should do that. No, the thing that makes us distinctive, the thing that makes us a Christ one and makes our salvation work is that we are in Christ. By God's grace, we actually share in Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, even his rule. Write this down. What God has accomplished in Christ, he has accomplished for us. That's union with Christ. And we think, well, isn't that a bunch of theological verbiage and that's kind of difficult to consider, but let me tell you, it has real-world application for your life. Rankin Wilborn, he wrote a beautiful book called Union with Christ, and 
he, he helps us to understand why this union with Christ is what we have always been looking for. And think of this application. To begin, it gives you permission to rest from trying to control your life. How much of your life energy is expired as you try to control your situation? We're always projecting. We get into the place of despair, the place of anger, the place of fear, the place of anxiety. Just like you can't predict the stock market, you can't predict tomorrow. How can you control anything about your life? But in Christ, I surrender the false sense of control that I thought I had, and I give it to Christ. And guess what? He's perfectly capable of controlling your future, your destiny, even your present. Another application, union with Christ also means you no longer need to justify your existence by your own work or merit. Again, so much life force used up trying to feel significant. We ask the question all the time, am I significant? Does my life matter? Have I done enough? The answer apart from Christ is always no. The answer in Christ is always yes. Because you've been raised up with him. You no longer need to justify your existence. You are the person that God wants you to be. You're uniquely in him. I love what Wilburn Rankin writes here. He says, in Christ you are significant. He makes you so. In Christ you are secure. Uh, he gathers you to himself. He keeps you safe. In Christ you are accepted, but that acceptance no longer has to be earned or maintained. It's granted by grace and guaranteed in Christ. He says this doesn't mean you stop working, but it does mean you now work in a totally new way. You no longer work for approval. You work from approval. I want you to see one more here this morning. You see, this union with Christ is so special because it provides the necessary boundaries that result in real freedom. There was a TED Talk by um, Barry Schwartz. He put together a work called The Paradox of Choice. And, and one of the big ideas that he captures in his book is we tend to think of freedom as having a buffet of choices. The more choice, the more freedom. Schwartz says that is not the case. He, he uses this fishbowl analogy, and he asks the question, how free is that fish? Now, we might look at the fish, and we might say the fish is very confined right now, but what happens if you shatter the boundaries, if you remove all the constraints? Does that improve the fish's situation? Not at all. No, it would destroy him. And Schwartz said this, he said, the absence of some metaphorical fishbowl is a recipe for misery and I suspect disaster. You know, the oxymoron that we all must learn to embrace, it seems like an oxymoron at least, is that boundaries set you free. 
boundaries set you free. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, we, pre-Christ, we think of sin equaling freedom. But Jesus is saying, no, sin does not equal freedom. Sin is the absence of the fishbowl. The more that people give themselves into the desires of sin, the more misery that's introduced into their life. Why did Christ come? Well, the Bible says he came to set the captives free. He wants to place his kindly rule, his kind law around you as a boundary over your life. And here's the thing. As you look at the scriptures, the boundaries that Christ put around you actually become something that you love and cherish because you realize there's so much freedom within the boundaries. It's not a little fishbowl. It's like an ocean of boundaries. And the dynamic of that change, that heart transition, is called transformation. As you look over our mission statement over here, we have three words that really talk about the the journey of faith. The first word is mission. The second word, transformation. Or the first word's worship. Second word's transformation. And the third word is mission. I hope you guys are sick of hearing me talk about this by now. Do you have those three words memorized yet? Let's say it together. Worship transformation, mission. Now we begin with worship. Why worship? Because as you look at the scriptures, you come to the realization that your very purpose, your very reason for existence, the reason why God created you was to glorify him. And when you enter into a right relationship with God through Christ, you get back to the very purpose of why you were created. It all begins there. Transformation is the next step. That's what we're talking about this morning. You were dead, but God made us alive in Christ. And the Bible says you enter into this beautiful process called sanctification where degree by degree you become more and more like Jesus as you give him more control over your life. And what we've come to realize through the scriptures here at OBC is that involves being a part of a local church. Because God has gifted us to be involved in the transformation of one another. I can't grow without God's people. After I engage in the process of transformation, now I'm sent by Jesus to tell people about Jesus and do good deeds in the name of Jesus. As you look at verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For we are his workmanship created. A better way to translate that word created is recreated. That's transformation. Recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. That's mission. That's why our theme this year matters so much. James said this in the scriptures. Your religion is worthless if you don't care about the pressing needs around you. It's worthless. So we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in Christ, you have a purpose that's much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than you. 
Don't be about your own story. Your, your story is a second-rate B film. Enter into the grand story, the, the story of God's purpose for your life. He has prepared good works for you. What are those good works? Well, there's a lot. There's so many. It could be that right now God wants you to invite one and journey with them. We talked about this a couple of months ago. You know, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, it's not just that I should say to someone, hey, would you like to come to church, a one-off event with that person, and be done with them? That's not a good ambassador. No, I need to invite them and journey with them. I need to become an ambassador friend. A journey is not a one and done. A journey sometimes takes three months, six months, a year of journeying with someone. Let's be that kind of church. It could be that God wants us to grow our heart for a community, your heart for the community. It's the time, I think, where each one of us needs to start asking the question, how am I loving the community? How? You see, that moves us into the space of action, doesn't it? Do I love the community? It's all still philosophical at this point. I can just say easy, yes, but how? How are you loving the community? How are you loving the Mid-Cape if you live in this area? How are you loving Sagamore? How are you loving Falmouth if you're from that area? Or Sandwich or, or Yarmouth? How are you loving the community? I just keep coming back to James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. It turns out that I'm really good at fooling myself. Very good at it. I mean, when it comes to Christ's call to feed the hungry, visit the lonely, care for the weak, I don't want to fool myself. I don't want to say I just care about it. I want to actually care for them. Paul says in the text right here, he says, you need to walk in the good works that God's prepared beforehand. Which I think implies that I may not walk in them. How do we love the community? Well, what has God prepared for you? And are you walking in it? Are you, you doing the things that he's laying on your heart? I love positive examples of these kinds of things. And I think there's a, a great pressing need before us right now in the world. We're all watching it on the news cycle. It involves 1.45 million Ukrainian refugees being displaced all throughout Europe. You know, as I've been thinking about this, the, the burden of it just weighs heavy on my heart. And I began to receive some emails from one of our members, Bud Reed. He was forwarding emails from this church in Moldova that we've had a relationship with over the years. Bud was just sharing his heart he was telling me all that was going on with the church in Moldova. Moldova has had over 100,000 refugees come into their own country. And let me just say this, they don't have a lot of resources to take care of that, those refugees. But this little church has turned their children's space into a bed and breakfast for refugees. It's incredible. And I just start thinking, well, we've got to get involved in this action. Like, how can we help? So I send a letter to the pastor. His name's Vitaly. And he sent me this response, which I thought was just beautiful. He was talking about the need, and 
He said, these days God has opened a large opportunity, I like that word, opportunity, to help and support refugees. The numbers are growing daily, that's why we decided to transform our children's Sunday school classes into dormitories for about 40. Most of them are mothers with their children because their husbands are not allowed to leave the country. Think about that for a minute. We're learning to do this ministry, but basically we are involved daily in several ways. The first is uh, transportation, bringing people from the Ukrainian border to Chisnau. That's where they are in Moldova, about 130 kilometers from the border. And then from Chisnau to Romanian border, that's another 100 kilometers. People that we bring from the border, most of them are spending hours at the border just waiting to be received. Some of them mothers with children who are walking 15 kilometers into the country to find some type of assistance. It's just, it's impossible to think about it all. He says here at the church, we're providing them food three times a day. We're also providing them personal hygiene products. We're helping little babies with pampers We've transformed a small baby's class as a playground for the small children. But most of all, with the Lord's help, we try to do our best to embrace each one of them with God's love and inspire hope in their hearts. Among them are also Christian families. For example, today we had a family with 15 children from Ukraine. A few days ago, a pastor from Odessa with his entire family stayed at the church. He said, please pray for God's intervention in this difficult time and that peace would be established. Pray for his protection upon Moldova, our church, our entire family. Pray for his leading in these days. Pray for our president, government, and parliament to follow the peaceful way of solving this situation Please pray that God would fulfill all the needs in his will. Please send our best greetings and love in Christ to your family and to the entire congregation. When Bud was passing along this information, he said, Pastor, can't we do something more than just pray? Now let's just stop there for a minute because I get what he's saying. The first and most important thing we can do is pray because God is the ruler of the universe, right? He's in control. He's the one who deposes kings and he sets them up. We definitely need to be praying. But then once you've prayed, do more than pray. So the elders, the stewardship committee, we put our minds together and we feel like a small response to this great need is to give $10,000 to this church in Moldova. You know, this is the time, right, to do something. It's a pressing, urgent need. When it comes to opportunities like this, I'm the type of individual I want to give in unison with my church. I I love how God directs and leads the church to do things. I want to contribute or be a part of that. So, What we've decided is we're giving $10,000. It's going over there. If you want to contribute to that $10,000 gift, you can write a check um, and participate with that. Katie and I want to do that. We want to be a part of this opportunity to help these people. 
Not because the church needs it. It's not about that at all. It's just I want to be involved in it because it matters and God's got it on my heart. If we give as a church and we contribute more than $10,000, we've determined that we're going to find some other organization that is also helping Ukrainian refugees. Every dollar of what we give to this is going to help people. So if you want to contribute, you just need to write a check or however the Lord leads and just indicate in the memo just refugees. And we promise every dollar of that is going to meet those pressing needs. Um, Church, I know that God wants us to be involved in this. I'm confident of it.